Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. A good leader is born or made. Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now, I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these past years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about leadership and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Minor Consult. It's my privilege to welcome this week's guest, a journalist, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and founder and CEO of the tech publication, The Information, Jessica Lesson. At The Information, she leads a newsroom covering the business side of Silicon Valley, providing news, analysis, and exclusive reporting on venture capital deals, the details of major acquisitions, and what goes on behind the scenes at the largest and most powerful tech companies in the world. I'm sure she has a lot to share with us about journalism, technology, and her own journey. Thank you so much for joining me, Jessica. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for the conversation. Jessica, you know, looking at your bio, it seems like you've had journalism in your blood. You wrote for your high school newspaper, also for the Harvard Crimson and the Wall Street Journal before starting your own publication. What did you find so compelling about journalism at a young age, and what's kept you engaged over the years? You know, what I loved about it initially and love to this day is to me, it seems like not having to pick a profession because you basically have a license and a mandate to learn new things all the time. And so back as a student, you know, I was interested in history. I was interested in science. I was interested in a lot of different things. And um the, the opportunity to just kind of learn and to um, have a, a calling card to calling up the experts in, in anything and, and try to explain that to people um, really fired me up and um, does to this day. What's the best piece of advice you received as a reporter as you were building your career and your reputation in reporting? Ooh, so much. Um, I think it had probably something in the realm of persistence and um, and and sticking with the story, uh, always, you know, trying to find, uh, you know, to, I guess, keep making the phone calls if it boiled down to something. You know, I, um, it's one thing that really kind of puts me at ease about today's like digital reporting, because I'm still like a picking up the phone kind of person. But, um, you know, when you're like anything, if you're if it's hard and challenging and important, it's gonna be hard, challenge, challenging. And um, you know, I I think early on, and I was fortunate to start my career at the Wall Street Journal, and you see all sorts of, and read all sorts of fabulous stories. Um, but but you know, they didn't come together overnight. And some sources that um, you, you may be um, trying to reach out to, you know, could take months and months. We, we at the information have published many stories like that, including um, investigations in, 
to uh, allegations of sexual harassment in the venture capital community going a couple of years back. And, you know, some of the, the women who came forward, um, you know, it took months to get them to a place where they wanted to. So I, I, I hope this is obviously a lesson that applies beyond journalism, but kind of just not expecting things to happen overnight and and kind of getting over that disappointment and frustration and just keeping at it. You mentioned you were at the Wall Street Journal and you built a very distinguished career there. And for many journalists, the Wall Street Journal is a destination publication. Um, and those good enough to get in a respected newspaper like uh, the Wall Street Journal oftentimes stay. But you decided to leave after eight years and start the information. Why did you decide to strike out on your own? So there were two big opportunities I saw, and, and there were kinds of things that I used to think about a bit on nights and weekends, and then it was like I couldn't get them out of my head. I had to had to make a move. Um, the first was around the future business models of news. Um, news, as, to no surprise, has been through this seismic business reckoning with the move to digital, the evaporation of print advertising. and. As a technology reporter, kind of watching how tech tends to disrupt industries, it struck me that the news industry was kind of like, was using the wrong playbook for thinking about being disrupted and was basically trying to chase the ad dollar game, a, a game that um, Facebook and Google and many others were always going to win. And instead of thinking about how technology can help us be better at what publications do um, and how we reach our audience, and how we grow businesses that are aligned with reader value and impact. And to me, that was what the promise of a, a real subscription, digital subscription business was. And it was confusing to me that publications weren't really embracing it more. There, there seemed to be this attitude in 2012 that, oh, that'll never work. People will never pay for news. And, and I thought that was a bit odd because people were paying for news. Print, print publications also had digital subscriptions or subscriptions, and they were also paying for Netflix, for Spotify, for all these things they valued. And so I saw the challenges, how do you build a product that is worth paying for in news? Um, and that became very exciting to me because it also felt existential to our industry kind of surviving. Um, and it's been fabulous to see almost now, you know, eight, nine years later, how that has been embraced by, by many publications. So. Um, one was business model, two was coverage. You know, I, I was fortunate to have followed um, many tech companies from their earliest days as a reporter and always saw technology coverage as not like covering those weirdos over in Silicon Valley, but covering the future of business, covering where the auto industry is going, where is retail going. Um, you know, I, you just... To me, technology is is the vector of change and transformation across business. It's not, you know, is this founder worth this much money, for example, which a lot of the tech coverage of eight, nine years ago was. And so that also animated me to build the information and is kind of our, our worldview, um, which is uh, you know, there you, you have to take these companies seriously. You have to take the power they hold very seriously. And it, it shouldn't be confined. It's not confined to a small audience. And, um, you know, that opportunity is, was also uh, kind of the premise and, and what, what, what left me to leave a job I, I did love. And I, 
I frankly felt I'd probably spend the rest of my career at, at the Wall Street Journal because it, it is such a fabulous publication. But, you know, surprised myself with that one, shall we say. Well, I think it's worth emphasizing you really, really were a pioneer with the subscription model. And um, I, I know there, there was a lot of skepticism when you uh, – when you conceived of the information, when you brought it uh, to people, and when you were building it as a business, um, what were there ever points at which you thought, uh, "Gee, maybe this isn't going to work"? Um, you 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 did build up, I think, a subscriber base quickly, uh, and and your hunch that that there was a need and demand out there proved to be certainly very very affirmed and validated by. Uh, by the way the information has grown over the years. But um, I think the pioneering and entrepreneurial nature of the information can't be uh, underestimated. And uh, just thinking back to those first days when you were hiring people to work with you, um, did, did you find that, that there was where you met with more enthusiasm than pushback or um, help us understand uh, that first year? Yeah. I th- um... You know, I, I think the first year and, and frankly, every year are defined in entrepreneurship by a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Um, and I think I was fortunate to have a husband and have a husband who still has men who uh, is an entrepreneur and has started many companies. And then I wrote about a bunch of them. So I think I was sort of mentally prepared um for that and signed up for that. And, uh, you know, it, it, maybe it sounds a bit sad. It's, to me, it does too, but got this advice early to like just stay in the middle. <laughs> um, now I think that runs the risk of not celebrating the highs, which become very important. Um, but that, uh, you know, that, that I've, I think I've been able to follow that. And, 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 and it's, um, but it's important to expect that because that's the reality. And, um, you know, I'll talk to founders who are far more experienced and advanced and successful. And I'll sometimes say like, you know, do, do, do you ever stop putting out fires? And I remember one um, enterprise software founder said, no, but the firefighting team gets bigger, <laughs> you know? And I, so, and I think about that, that regularly. Um, you know, it's funny, I think the early, rea- some of our, fortunate looking out at, at our team now in our, our hybrid office, today's an in-office day, um, many people here have been with us since the beginning or since very early. So I think there were, was a core group that got, that we, you know, has been am- animated by this and, um, but but many more people who, who were skeptical and, and uh, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, bringing some of them aboard hasn't been extra satisfying. Uh, we, we've started to write with, work with some writers recently who, um, you know, they're, they're very candid about how crazy they thought we were, but um, we love having them on the team. And and then for many, you know, many who still probably deeply question what we're doing and, um, but that's okay too. I, I think, I think startups and founders can really um, lose their true north by trying to be all things to all people. And um, there's a lot to learn from everyone, but I, I'm more curious, like, I think there's a lot to learn from the detractors. Um, it may not translate into a difference in your strategy, but it, it's certainly interesting. So it's been nearly a decade now since you founded the information, and it's grown to be the biggest dedicated newsroom in tech journalism. And your reporters are known for their exclusives, exclusives and also for their in-depth analyses. 
So how do you cultivate sources and keep the trust of your sources, even when you often write stories that they may not always like? It's an excellent question. And, and honestly, I think just candid, um, upfront professional relationships or, you know, there, there's no, it's basically that simple. Um, you know, relationships often take time to build, not always. Um, and, and are based on a sense of, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense of, um, you know, that they're two way. I think some people miss that too. And they vision of journalists as like tricking people into talking to them. That That's not how our stories come together. It's certainly not how our biggest stories come together. There's a shared understanding of a desire to inform or to explain something or to to get it right and in a shared relationship that that works both ways that the people we talk to are learning from us and vice versa and to me that's really um what the journalism and, and the sourcing is based off of and you know we we uh, many people on our team have been covering tech since the dot-com bust in some way on our editing side and um, we, we're, we're hosting a little session for our reporters on that um, next week. Not that it all has anything to do with now, we'll <laughs> see, but um, it's, uh, you know, so, so time, but then, but then just being straight with people, you know, that everyone's like, oh, that story must have burned that source. You know, the, the only way that happens is, in my experience, is really if the person felt, feels deceived, mm. but, but <laughs> acknowledging, you know, this is going to be tough. This is what we're hearing. We want to hear your side of it. Uh, we're going to give you time to tell us. We're going to give you the opportunity to correct what you want. Um, those kinds of relationships to me are, are relationships that endure um, and, and allow us to really just focus on the journalism and, and tune out other concerns. We're, we're in a period now where traditional media, uh, the confidence is waning in the public and there's mistrust for reporters and for their work. And however misplaced that mistrust is, um, but it, it's it must be a much more difficult world for reporters and for journalism today. And and of course we're facing that in, in science as well, where there's there's disinformation, and there's mistrust, and um, and people uh, who uh, in in the past have enjoyed the public trust and the public confidence. I'm interested in what we can learn from you and from journalists uh, it needs to be done to rebuild trust with the public because I think it applies it applies to journalism but it applies to other areas like science as well so maybe first why do you think the the, the mistrust has arisen and what do we need to do to try to rebuild it you know so I, I think Unfortunately, we are against even the concept of a public um, to, uh, you know, kind of earn that trust and re-earn it with is, is um, it's banished, you know. I mean, where technology has allowed people to, to you have access to so much more information, good or bad, and you can perpetually live in your filter bubble if you want. And, and, and I don't, there isn't really a fix to that, that, that I think... Um, uh, certainly that that I can't discern and um, and so it doesn't mean that that there isn't work that we can do but I think the idea that you know there, there's a public to influence and a public to win over um, is very very challenging you know what what I like to how I think of it is like let's inject as much quality 
into the system as possible, right? right? Because if scientists and doctors aren't speaking their truth loudly and and journalists aren't doing their jobs loudly, you know, then we're we're sort of like what's left isn't um, isn't that valuable. And the good news and what we've seen is that quality does get attention. Um, that if you know you have a really excellent piece of journalism that um, the, there's a bigger than ever audience for that and it will influence people. So um, I, I, I think there's obviously a lot more thinking to do about this, but I'm, I'm sure that one of the ingredients is ensuring that the quality exists, that there's the businesses to support it, that there's the talent in the fields that wants to do it. Um, and, and I think if we start there, we'll set ourselves up better to solve some other problems. You spoke about uh, the fact that when we talk about the public today, what what do we mean? And and also that um, tech, for all of its benefit to society and and its empowerment um, and its contribution to breaking down historic barriers to information, uh, tech also has fueled a number of very concerning trends in society. As you talk to industry leaders in technology and just in your own expertise and in your newsroom, what what's the dialogue today about the impact of tech in the world? And um, and it, it, are, is the tech industry, broadly speaking, feeling good about where we are, not feeling good? Um, and what changes do you see perhaps resulting from this internal dialogue within the industry? I think there's concern across the board from uh, critics of the industry, uh, and then in increasingly the industry as well. And, and you know, there, there's many dimensions to the concern, but I think a lot of it comes down to just the power that tech companies have. You know, we, we have big com tech companies telling us they want more regulation. Now, of course, they want it on their terms, but, like, there's a, even that unease that, like, of, of the role that uh, many of them have found themselves in. Now, they made a tremendous number of mistakes and a lot of self-inflicted problems, um, which the press and, and other external groups, I think, have, have sort of finally stepped up to, to pay more attention to. But um, I, I think uh, there, there is that total unease and, and reckoning uh, that doesn't feel like it will happen all at once, but, it, but I think it's going to be an extraordinary theme of of the next decade. And so, you know, when I look and think about our coverage, it's really where can we where can we expose that? Where can we help people understand that? How do we sort of hold the industry's feet to the fire on important things? And um, you know, I, I think that's how we see it. Now there are there are other publications that only see it that way, right? That that will view I'm I'm often you'll have a, you know, a tech philanthropist donate a lot of money to climate and something wonderful in there and just instantly looking for the like what's in it for that angle or so you know so i i don't know i i think we have to tech isn't just good or bad but it but it has a, an extraordinary um and and just unsettling amount of power right now and and that's a story i mean you even i think that translates to companies and then increasingly to individuals if you look at um how Elon Musk has been looking to take over Twitter as an example. Um, maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing, but kind of an extraordinary thing regardless. And um, so uh, 
that seems to be the tenor. I mean, in, in terms of like what the sort of industry scuttlebutt around it is too now, I, I, it, it's, a, it's a bit noisy to, and hard to tell because I think there's also just so much unease and uncertainty about where we are in the world, both from a pandemic sense and an economic sense. So um, it feels like there's a lot to shake out in, in the year or so ahead. On the topic of regulation, what advice would you give policymakers in terms of the principles uh, they should try to keep in mind as they're contemplating uh, regulation in the tech industry? You mentioned that uh, industry leaders are calling for regulation, but regulation on their terms. Uh, you've studied this a lot, uh, tracked it through the information. What would be the most meaningful, from a society point of view, the most meaningful approach to regulation? Oh, I, you know, in some ways above my pay grade, but, but I think one theme I, I've often come back to lately is not just thinking about the companies, but thinking about some of the key figures and, and not to go back to Elon again, but he makes the point so well, you know, um, Elon is a, is a, I call him a creator CEO. I mean, because he's sort of this individual CEO who's brand influence ambitions are, are bigger than one company right and he doesn't even necessarily think as ceos do as like accountable to the shareholders of this company right he like has been sort of leveraging equity in one company to buy another company as a side part right he's just a whole different model of that and and so i i think that is interesting from a regulatory perspective to start to look i think outside um, even traditional structures a little bit because that's what technology is doing right now. Now, as I say that, I'm like, well, that sounds hard. Government doesn't move that way. And, and, and I think it is hard, but, but I think that the old playbook, whether you're defining industries in a certain way or companies in a certain way, um, it's changing fast. And, and I think that's the challenge and I guess would be my advice. One issue that's on a lot of people's mind today is the issue of data privacy, and, and you've covered that a lot in the information on data privacy and transparency. What do you think people should know about what tech companies are doing with their data, and how can business leaders earn the trust of a consumer base that's increasingly skeptical about what happens to their personal information? You know, and it's funny, way back, one of the first sort of big projects I did at the World Street Journal more than a decade ago was on this topic, and it's amazing how it, it remains so significant. You know, I, I think um, I think we are at an, a big shift in terms of how companies are thinking about date, personal data, in part because of regulation. Um, and so these days, the conversations inside the largest tech companies are basically around like, how can we get a certain type of relevance um, that yes, is important to our bottom line, but they also think is what consumers want um, with less data. And some of this is because Apple's made it harder to use data, some of this is regulation, but those are the conversations now you know, those, whatever comes next could be implemented in more or less privacy-friendly ways and, and so on and so forth. But, but I do think that 
I don't think the conversation inside these companies today is like, how do we milk every little grain of data that we can get? I think it's much more, what are consumers, regulators, other stakeholders going to be comfortable with? And, and then how do we ultimately deliver like the best product that we can within those constraints? Because that's, you know, if, if people aren't finding these tech services relevant, they won't use them and, um, and the advertisers obviously don't show up, but but it, it, I, it, as far as I can tell, is not that kind of conversation of, um, you know, we're sitting on this gold mine, let's milk it. But um, you know, it's also challenging because I I do think that consumer interest in it kind of varies. Like I I don't want to micromanage. I like personalization. I like doing things I'm interested in. Um, I think you just, of course, want to make sure that it's not abused. So um, I, 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 not clear to me exactly what the picture will look like going forward, but, but it is clear that I think we are seeing a shift um, very much um, spurred by Apple, I, I think, and um, it will lead to some different kinds of conversations. The tech industry has not been known for diversity, and one of the things that you and your colleagues at The Information have done is to regularly publish a dashboard. Uh, there's nothing like data to drive a conversation and to drive change. How, how has tech changed in the past decade, and how would you grade Silicon Valley's efforts to grow diversity? Uh, I don't know. The efforts to grow maybe a C, B minus lately. Yeah. I mean, this look. There is real intention going into in a lot of areas, um, but very slow progress. And and probably, you know, some intention that's genuine, some intention that's more kind of PR driven. Um, it's a hard problem, uh, and. Um, there isn't an easy solution. I've seen a lot of companies that seem to be doing all the right things and still haven't moved the needle. So um, definitely encouraged by the more conversations happening, but I think we, we have a lot to still unlock in terms of making a difference. Is there a particular story or a series of stories in the information that you're particularly proud of in terms of its impact or in terms of what it's revealed about a company or the industry more broadly? Yeah, well, yes, every week now, um, but Understood. Um, absolutely. Yeah, you know what, we're fortunate to just have so many incredible reporters. Um, and, and I think we're, our team who hails from places like the Journal, the Times, Bloomberg, um, are here to do the ambitious stories. That's what we do. Um, you know, some that come to mind, we, uh, you know, we, we, done some very important reporting, I think, at the intersection of Apple and China, as an example, you know, uh, where you take uh, a relationship that's obviously very important um, and you kind of suspect that there's a lot of um, maybe a lot behind the scenes that people don't know and consumers don't know. And um, we actually did a piece last year where we were able to reveal a, a secret agreement between Tim Cook signed um, that, that actually even led to Apple changing the size of certain um, territories and Apple Maps to appease the Chinese government. So I think just being able to shed light on real details that, um, you know, have broad interest and significance. Um, 
I think uh, just also making sense of of this moment for people is also something I, I think we're really trying to do. We um, published this week um, a slide deck that Sequoia has shared with its portfolio companies around like how the heck to prepare for what's ahead for the industry. And um, I think what we always try to do is to put a lot of detail on that. A lot of people might write about that theme, but to really bring people inside. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, the stories that we often come back to are the ones that also enact change, um, you know, are, are reporting back on relationship between a lot of tech companies and China has been cited extensively in Congress. And, um, you know, there are many more examples about that, too. More and more women are delving into entrepreneurship and becoming phenomenally successful, but women don't have an equitable stake in this space. What's your advice for young women who want to become entrepreneurs? You know, I mean, I, I think it's to swing for the fences, but to, again, recognize the high highs and the low lows, you know, and, and to really, um, I think, first and foremost, make sure that this is something you really, really want to do. Um, I guess that would be my advice for all entrepreneurs, but but I, I think it's really important because there are many ways to have a fabulous career and, and do many things, but you have to be wired a little bit differently. Um I think once you've made that shift, finding other women to get advice from, I think, is invaluable. And, and obviously, that's a mentorship point. It's not incredibly unique, but um, it's, it's been surprising to me uh, where I found female founder mentors. You know, so I, it's interesting. I'm a journalist, and so often, you know, CEOs don't want to be an open book with me because I'm a journalist. But but obviously, you have different types of relationships with people, and, and I've been very fortunate to know a lot of wonderful female not just CEO founders um, but leaders you know ask everything from like how do you think about performance reviews like all you know the nuts and bolts all the way up to the the bigger questions um, those don't just have to be women obviously but but you know there's been something very nice about um, the relationships I have built with female leaders and um, and I, I guess a related bit of advice with but you know, that could sound like a very heavy lift. It can be very inorganic and casual. A lot of those relationships weren't ones where I, you know, set out to establish this formal relationship. They, they've just kind of evolved. And, and so I, I think that that's a wonderful way to do it, too. This podcast was established to explore leadership during a crisis, uh, COVID-19. Can you talk about how you, as a founder and CEO, of the information navigated your your company, your publication, your people during the pandemic, and what lessons you learned as a leader uh, from the challenges of the pandemic. You know, when I go back to um, you know two two plus years ago, I, I think what I'm very proud of our team for is how focused we got. You know, we knew the lanes where our journalism could have an impact. We knew the kind of business priorities we were still excited about. And we stuck to those and we, we didn't sweat other stuff. Um, and out of it came some wonderful things that have changed both our, our culture and our product today. Our most popular uh, newsletter started as a COVID tech briefing and now has merged into a broader briefing and, and so on. So. 
um, I, I think just staying really focused and trying, you know, I think that's how all startups keep moving forward, but it seems particularly important in a crisis. Personally, I, I think a lesson I learned and I'm still very much learning is is how to be a, um, a more effective communicator as, as a CEO without the um, benefit of seeing a big chunk of the team in person um, with so many fast moving pieces that people on the team um, are obviously deeply interested in, perhaps concerned about uh, how to do that. And um, we, we've implemented a lot in that dimension, but I think have a lot more to do. What gives you hope for the future? Oh man, a lot. I mean, I, I think so about my business in particular, a tremendous amount, because I think, you know, this force, aka technology that has so ravaged the news industry, it is also this like rocket ship for us, right? We can reach globally, you know, vast numbers of readers with excellent journalism at, at any moment in real time and, and influence the conversation. And and that that fires me up. And 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 you know, technology has also really lowered the cost structure of doing that in ways. Um, thank you, no more printing presses. Um, so, you know, the economics, the fundamental economics of our business and the, the opportunity and are massive. And, and to the point of loss of trust, you, which I think is, is obviously essential, the flip side of it is people are ready for, for trust and ready for quality. And, you know, that, that is an, an identified problem in many places. So. Um, I get really jazzed by that and, and, and by, you know, the, the talent that, um, I think is being drawn to new opportunities right now. You know, you don't have to hitch yourself to one rocket ship for 30 years in your career. And in fact, your trajectory of personal growth and professional growth is in many cases going to be more dramatic elsewhere. And so I, I think I find that, um, you know, those things really, really exciting and, um, it's a wonderful question because probably things that we should spend more time thinking about. So, Before we go, as a professional writer, I'm sure you read extensively. Do you have any recommendations, in addition to the information, of course, uh, for good reads or exciting new writers to explore? Yes, um, many. I mean, it's so fun. I, I'm actually on a book kick at the moment. Um, and I, for, for reasons that are perhaps tied to this moment, but I've gone deep into like histories of the Federal Reserve, which I find very interesting. Um, but uh, on a more ongoing basis, you know, I think, um, what am I drawn to? I, I read so widely. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, one, which I, I think is very important right now, although I, I do have a big interest in, but um, there's a publication called The 19th. It's a nonprofit and it covers um, issues at the intersection of women and politics and policy and gender. And, and the thinking is it has a, a very strongly covers policy in, in U.S. policy. And because historically the editors leading newsrooms on those topics have been men, there have been these just huge issues that just haven't gotten coverage. Um, and uh, the 19th, which is run by Emily Ramshaw, and, and I um, am sort of advisor to, has just been off to the races and sort of widening the aperture of what gets talked about in the political cycle. Um, and so particularly a moment like now, 
I, I think it is, it's nonpartisan, um, very strongly so, but it, it um, is been a wonderful resource just to me personally, and so I would highly recommend it. Great. Jessica, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine, Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with Silicon Valley's ultimate insider, CEO and founder of The Information, Jessica Lesson. Keep watching and keep learning with me as we continue to look at leadership during a once-in-a-generation crisis. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. <laughs>